dare great things for Christ. Christ calls us to dare great things. In the marketplace, as well as in the mission field, there has never been a time like the present for the spirit of the Catholic entrepreneur. Now is the time for men and women of great courage and great vision to engage our church and our culture. Now is the time to dare great things. And here is your host as we dare great things, Father Nathan Cromley, the president and founder of the St. John Institute. Most of us are well aware of the story of King David, of the way that God blessed him and of God's eternal covenant with David. And most of us are aware of the story of Bathsheba and David's famous lack of chastity. The lessons of the life of David for our spiritual lives are many and deep. But studying his failures from Bathsheba to Absalom, his son, to his census of Israel, teaches us a powerful lesson about God's merciful love for his leaders. All right, everybody, thanks and welcome back to uh, this class we're doing together on leadership and especially looking today at part two of our series on where leaders fail. And I know this can be slightly depressing for folks, right? Like no one really wants to look at where leaders fail. We want to look at where leaders succeed. But I think that's kind of a problem because the fact is, in our own leadership, none of us is perfect. And as a matter of fact, most of us are far from perfect. And if we continue to insist that, oh, great leaders do these great things, when we look at our own lives and we realize that our office staffs are messes, that our, you know, our people don't believe in us anyway, that our families aren't very good, well, we're not going to be inspired necessarily to keep striving after an impossible goal. Most of us are going to get discouraged. We're going to say, God put me in this world to lead it, and I'm failing, and I'm failing miserably. And so all that I can really do is basically give up my, my leadership and just let someone else run with the ball. Or what do we do when we try really, really hard and we don't make it? I mean, we all know failure is not always our fault. I mean, it's always our responsibility, but it's not always our fault. Sometimes it, people underneath you just weren't any good or because the circumstances in the market shifted, you know, or a pandemic hits the globe, you know? I mean, there can be all kinds of reasons why things don't go our way and even things go against the way that we wanted them to go. And, and so because, what do you do then? Do you, I mean, a lot of us, we say, well, I'm a, I'm a miserable failure. I'm no good. I'm a reject. And it's because in part, we had this idea that God only wins and his people never lose. And so since God always wins, his people never lose. If I lose, it must be because somehow or other I wasn't with God. And that's why I find it very refreshing to look at the lives of the saints and see where, in fact, they had to encounter this same kind of loss. It's not depressing at all unless you've never had a loss. <laughs> if you've never lost and you've never failed and never had anything go against you, well then, yeah, you kind of say to yourself, this is worthless to look at all of this. We should instead be looking at the great exploits of the great emperors. And I say, you're right, we should, and we'll definitely do that. But there is a lot of value, especially when in the Bible, you see the places where God records the failures of his leaders. 
if God didn't want us to know about their failures, then he wouldn't have written them down in the infallible word of God. But the Bible is replete not only with great victories, but also with failures. And I think this is because sometimes in those failures, God writes his deepest victories. And all of us who have encountered shortcomings, failures, betrayals, uh, things that didn't work out go our way, or all of us who have led imperfectly, we need to see that God is still with us. And that in fact, God can write his great victories, even using the storylines of our imperfections. So this is why I wanted to gather you today to talk to you about this. Let's go ahead and start us off though with a prayer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, you are perfect and all that you do is right. We ask that you fill our souls with the knowledge of your love for us. And as we study today, King David and his own shortcomings help us to see therein hope and mercy and love for you. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. St. John, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, open your Bible with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is, of course, talking about King David and, you know, King David, how, I mean, absolutely stupendous his life was. Not only did he slay Goliath, but he was anointed by Samuel ahead of time in order to be the king of Israel. He was predicted that he would be this great king. And then he was, and he takes over the kingship from Saul, you know, and dances in front of the ark. And you have this incredible person who has led an incredible life. And then he comes to a tragic fall. This is, of course, 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. All right, that first verse is the key to his downfall. We know what's going to happen the rest of the story. This is Bathsheba. David sees her bathing. David lusts after her. David ends up going towards her and knowing her as a husband should. And the only problem is he's not her husband. <laughs> and instead, he gets her husband, Uriah, killed in battle to cover up for his crime because Bathsheba is now pregnant. All right, so such a terrible thing as this, where the king of Israel falls, you'd say, well, where is his fault? Well, his fault, of course, is in his lack of personal mastery. This is the first of David's three failures. He's going to have two more, one with Jonathan and then a third, which is a failure in the family. And then a third is failure over Israel when he counts them in a census. All right. So with the, the scripture re records here at least three major failings of David with all of his greatness. And we're not discounting his greatness and that power of inspiration. What I find incredible about this story is that every time that David fails, God meets him with mercy. The world will not meet you with mercy when you fail. The world will not give you a second chance when it cancels you, right? No one out there is willing to forgive, even for the great exploits that people did, a sin that they now deem to judge against a person who, when he was alive or when she was alive, it wasn't even seen as a bad thing then. Well, today, that's unforgivable. And it's amazing that all of us living in such glass houses can throw stones with, with such careless abandon. Because 
you would think that the people today who throw such stones and make such judgments must live immaculate lives themselves. Well, they better hope so. If not, the very judgments that they wield against others will one day be wielded against themselves. But be, be that as it may, we live in a time where, man, it's almost like a failure is seen as absolute and final. I think of that quote that is sometimes attributed to, to Winston Churchill, where he says, failure is never final. Isn't that a wonderful, that's a wonderfully Christian-inspired quote. Failure is never final. Success is never the end. Only the courage to continue counts. Right? And failure is never final. Well, that's a great Christian-inspired saying, and it inspires some of the greatest leaders because David here has a colossal failure. And what's at the root of it? Well, verse 1 told us what was at the root. It was the time of year when kings go out to battle, and David remained in Jerusalem. He sent his soldiers to do his job and his soldiers to wage the war while he himself stayed back in Jerusalem. There's the flaw of the king. At its heart, his moral failure with respect to chastity had its root in a moral failure respect with respect to courage. He was not doing his duty. He was no longer pursuing the great things that had been laid out in store for his, him to do. He was supposed to go as a king goes into battle, and instead he sends his soldiers and remains in Jerusalem. And in that lassitude of soul creeps in a lack of chastity. David fails in a personal way, and he fails grievously. What happens, of course, Nathan comes, the, the prophet, and he corrects David, and, you know, and David says in, in 2 Samuel 12, 13, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has surely put away your sin. You shall not die. That's amazing. As soon as David admits his sin, the Lord comes and forgives him. There's a consequence for his sin, absolutely. But David is to carry that consequence in the courage of knowing that God's steadfast love for him has not failed. Well, God's steadfast love for you has not failed either. His love lasts forever. My friends, do not despair, no matter how great be your sin. If you acknowledge it before the Lord and come to confession, Jesus Christ can restore you and wants to restore you. Just because you fall personally doesn't mean that it's over it means that God is about to begin. This is Father Nathan. Are you thinking of starting your own business? Or even better, thinking of starting your own ministry of some sort? As we know, success is not going to be determined solely upon spirituality. It also needs training, networking, understanding, and true leadership. This is why we started the St. John Leadership Institute in Denver, Colorado. Join our class this fall and start your business or your ministry on the right foot. Find out more on our website, stjohnleadershipinstitute.org. Okay, so we've taken a look at 2 Samuel 11 and 12, where David fails in a personal level. But this, the story's not over. You know, the, the failures of David, of course, his many successes to be underlined, and this is, of course, what inspires us. But let's also take a look at what God does when the other aspects of David's life also unravel. And I'm speaking here about his family. We know this, you know, that not only his personal life is at stake here, but David is the head of a household. He has many children. 
How does the great king of Israel fare with his children? Well, of course, there are many success stories here as well, and we don't want to forget those, but let's just take a look at what Scripture records for us as a spot where we see another area that many of us despair about, and that is our relationship with our children. Take a look at 2 Samuel 13 and 14, for example. This is really where an, uh, the beginning of an entire account of a rebellion by David's son, Absalom, begins to be recounted. You have, you have uh, four or five chapters describing Absalom and his rebellion, a rebellion that goes even so far as to try to claim the throne of David and threaten David's life. Okay, he has a son who's absolutely out of control here. And it's a, it's a, he, he threatens the stability of the kingdom because he's claiming the throne. Not, it does not supposed to go to Solomon, according to Absalom. It's supposed to go to Absalom because Absalom wants to claim that power. And it, it's a very dark story in 2 Samuel 13. It has to do with a love gone awry between members of David's own household and the, and the revenge by one of David's sons, Absalom, against Amnon, one of David's other sons who violated David's daughter. Absalom, being a brother of the girl who was offended, decides to revenge her by taking the life of Amnon. And he waits two full years to find his opportunity to do it. And so, you know, it's... This could sound kind of familiar, right? Inside of your own house, the brooding tensions, even going to the point of murder and revenge between siblings that David simply is unaware of. After all, David has many children. The Bible actually records 19 sons and one daughter by seven different wives. So you could say, I mean, David had his hands full and at the same time he's going off and killing all these different kings and making all these different wars that are happening. Then he's got a kingdom to run. So his hands are full, just like our hands get full when we're at work and we have all these projects and things happening and we can let go some of the basic needs of our own household. Well, you know, it's, it's forgivable, you could think, on the one hand, because there's just so many things to do. And if you've got a big family, you can't possibly control them all. You find yourself in the situation that David found himself in. And what happens? The worst case scenario. One son, Absalom, actually goes and kills another son, Amnon, and kills him in cold blood in order to revenge his sister's honor. So this is, of course, just a terrible situation. And yet, what does God do? Remember what I said. When we fail in our leadership, God doesn't leave us destitute. I mean, David must have felt just so low at this moment. Now, because of his sin of Bathsheba, with Bathsheba, one of the things, the consequences was that Nathan the prophet said that the consequence of this will be that the sword will never depart from your house, right? And now the prophecy is being fulfilled in front of David's eyes. And he's got to look back and he said, you know, think to himself, this is all my fault. But you know what? Saying things are all your fault is not always really helpful. Because regardless of what the fault may be and where it may lie, and regardless of even if we're the ones that do it, the, the trick is our eyes need to be on God's mercy. And God can write straight with crooked lines. And even this evil that's befalling his house, 
David has to be corrected from the temptation we all have to look inwardly, to blame ourselves, and which is in a sense a kind of pride. Because you could say, oh, the biggest problem David has is that his life is not perfect. Well, sometimes having a perfect life, my friends, is, can actually be an obstacle to God's work in our life and can be an obstacle to us glorifying God. Because we can be in, so attached to our own perfection that we overlook the greatness that God is doing in our life and the perfection that he's bringing us towards. And, and so God will sometimes allow us to fail, to be knocked down, precisely to pick us up again with this greater perspective of saying that the real trick of life, the real goal of what he wants us here for is not necessarily so that everything goes well, but that we meet him, love him, know him. And sometimes it's by our own failures in our families and in situations that we can't even control that God will teach us that deeper lesson. You know, it's in the imperfection of David's household that David has to cling all the more to God. And we see this as the story spell, uh, spells itself out here. David has the, the, the revolution, really, of Absalom on his hands. And there's a moment where they could have Absalom killed, and David refuses to see his son be put to the sword. And when finally Absalom is killed, he weeps and weeps uncontrollably because of this. Even though the people that killed his son thought they were doing a favor to the king by ending the rebellion, David weeps. He's learned a, a deeper lesson. It's not about the outer victories with his army. It's not about how successful his kingdom may be. It's about the love that he has for his son and the love of his family. There, there's a conversion that only comes because of David's failure. If Absalom had not rebelled and the sword had not struck David's house and all things were at rest and quiet, David probably would have busied himself with more trivial affairs like running a kingdom, which my friends is more trivial than running a family. Always remember that. Your place in your work and your career is secondary to your family. It is not the high point of your life. The high point of your life is found in the depths of your relationships and the quality of your family. And when God allows his family to disintegrate, it reminds David of what's really essential. And you find yourself finally in 2 Samuel 18, looking at a David who's grieving the death of the rebel because he's his son. There's a conversion that's operated in David's soul through the rebellion of Solomon and through, therefore, his own failure that wouldn't have been there otherwise, a depth to who he is that has the handwriting of God all over it. This is Father Nathan. I know that there are many ways to learn leadership, that there's many great methods out there that are even put forth by Catholics. But here at the St. John Leadership Institute, we actually have a unique way of forming leaders. It's called Audeo. That's Latin for I dare. At our campus in Denver, Catholics can learn an authentically Catholic way to become a leader. Check us out on our website, stjohnleadershipinstitute.org. All right, so in 2 Samuel 11, we saw David fall personally. Then in 2 Samuel 14, we saw the, 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 his household being an unrest and rebellious children. 
I mean, when you look at it, the, even the throne of David, it, it, he, is Solomon the king or is Absalom the king? Adonijah goes and tries to make himself king. I mean, it must have been disheartening for David to see his own children fighting each other over the throne. I mean, this must have been extremely disheartening for him because his children weren't living for God. They weren't living with that spiritual quest. It was almost like the sin of their father who had become a rich and wealthy and successful king and had forgotten his God, right, became inherited by his children. And then when his father comes to a spiritual awakening at the, at the death of his son, Absalom, well, he suddenly realizes what life is all about and his children aren't following in his footsteps. Does this sound familiar? So many people strive today to be so successful on a material score and they get the best education, they run their businesses. You spend your whole life starting your business, developing your business, and you can forget sometimes the wisdom that comes later in life and you wish your children could save themselves that expense. And if you are to dare great things in the world of business, well, dare them, but just don't lose your soul. Dare them because you have a soul not in order to gain a soul. Right? You gain the soul by the love of God for you and the gift of his grace and his mercy. You don't gain a soul by business. You then express that your love for God by what you do in the world of business and, and, and in your family. But it begins with his gift and that's the lesson you always have to remember. And there's David now watching his children fighting over it. But his calamities aren't at an end. He makes another colossal mistake this time in second samuel chapter 24 go ahead and turn to that with me here it says in verse 1 again the anger of the lord was kindled against israel and he incited david against them saying go number israel and judah now i can hear already what you're saying you're saying well i mean what's david's problem how could he be faulted with this if it's god who actually incited him to take the census well, you got to go to 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1, where it actually reads that Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So you have two different spots. Here it says it was the Lord, and there in 1 Chronicles 21, it says it was the devil. Now, you have all kinds of explanations for this. Some people saying, well, that's because God allowed the devil to do it or whatever. But be that as it may, in Exodus chapter 30, God clearly tells Moses that the census belongs to God. Why? Because Israel belongs to God. So David in chapter 24 of 2 Samuel angers God because he goes and numbers all of Israel in Judah. And he says to Joab, the commander of the army, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. Well, of course, this is not good because it's not his people. He doesn't own them. It's like an act of pride. Okay, that's the way that this has been interpreted traditionally. In any case, God then, of course, issues the consequence for that. And he has to choose between three things, either three months where he's running away from his enemies or if there's a famine to come upon the land for three years or, in fact, there'll be a severe pestilence. David chooses the pestilence. And it moves on. Now, what's amazing about this is once again, you meet God's mercy. If you take a look, it says in 2 Samuel 24, verse 15, So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and so forth. 
And the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. So once again, you have an act of mercy by God to accompany the repentance of David. This is, of course, the lesson behind all of this. On the one hand, you have David who sins personally by a grievous act of, of unchastity followed by murder. And when he repents, he has a consequence for his action, and yet he is forgiven for the sin. Then his family falls into all kinds of disorder. David's own sons are seeking his death in order to gain his throne, and the power over Israel seems to be stronger in attraction than even the bonds between sons and their fathers. And David has to carry that heavy cross of family disorder. And yet he repents. He becomes a man of compassion and mercy because he realizes the value of God and progressively as he grows older. And even though it ends with the tragic death of Absalom, yet still his family comes to a kind of peace. And then finally, of course, this act of the census this taking of pride over the people of God. Even in his old age, David continues to sin and God continues to show mercy. So what does this show us? It shows us that leadership will expose many aspects of our life that otherwise would not have been exposed. Because you are in a position of leadership, you are tested and tried in ways that other people are not. And do not give in to the temptation to believe that somehow or other you're worse than everybody else just because your faults and your failings are more readily seen and more obvious than everyone else. If David hadn't been the king of Israel, he wouldn't have had these opportunities that he had to fail. Well, that's also because he was the king of Israel, so he was actually trying. Now, why does God allow this to happen to us? It's always to purify us. So it's a blessing when even our, our downside is exposed and where our darkness can be seen, this is also a blessing because it was in there all along. And God's simply allowing the plowshares, so to speak, of our leadership risk and opportunities to expose and turn over the deep side of us and the roots of sin that are growing inside of us. It's a brutal existence. It's a harsh reality to live always exposed to the light. But God's mercy is there, and he will never, ever fail you. He was with David, faithful to the end. He carried David like a father carries his son. He loved and cherished David. He does the same for you and me. Don't give up hope. Trust in his deep, merciful love for you. Dare great things for Christ. Share your feedback with Father Nathan. Send us an email at info at stjohninstitute.org. That's info at stjohninstitute.org. And don't forget to subscribe to premium video content to form, unite, and inspire you at Eagle Eye Pro on our website, eagleeyeministries.org. That's eagleeyeministries.org.